I hope you noticed, um, I'm sure you did, the, the flow of thought here and as I was able to pick the hymns for this Sunday and it was intentional. It begins with, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, you know, the glory of Christ, his magnificence, his deity, um, his eternality, that we exalt his name. And then the next hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. You know, the reality that as we stand before this holy God, who is almighty and infinite and holy and pure, uh, that we are needy. And that this God invites the sinners who are poor and needy to come before him for salvation. And then the next hymn, All I Have is Christ. When you come to Christ for salvation, you realize that all the things in the world, like we read from John 6, all the pleasures and the bread and the food and the drink and the comforts and the wealth, the riches and the fame, you realize when you come to Christ that there is truly only one bread from heaven that satisfies. And that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. All we have in life that is worth boasting about or speaking about is Christ. And of course, what that is to bring from us as his people is a recognition of our love for him. That of all the things in the world, of all the things that we could set our affections on and long for, our love and devotion is for the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This is the flow of the songs that we just sang. And in a very real sense, as I thought about this, it fits with how John really begins his gospel. It actually is a, is a picture of the flow of John's thought, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment, but I want you to turn to the gospel of John um, because we are going to be reading and looking at chapter 1, verses 35 um, to the end of the chapter this morning. So let me read uh, this passage of Scripture, and let's then pray that the Lord would bless it to, to us this morning. Hear from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came with him. Uh, they came, so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that we have read from and heard from over and over again in this service. Uh, We thank you for your word and we thank you for what it teaches us about ourselves and what it tells us about you and about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask now that this passage, as we look at it in a bit more detail, Father, would, uh, would strengthen us and admonish us and encourage us and, and be a reminder to us, Father, of what you have called us to and of what it means to come to Christ and to be received by him. Uh, we ask, Father, uh, that you would bless this to our to our souls this morning, by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things, uh, and we'll go back again and just quickly review the prologue, I like to overlap, you know, in order to keep the context of what we're looking at here, but you'll remember in the prologue that one of the things that uh, John highlighted as he began this, his gospel, is he highlighted uh, as we looked at several times already, the deity and the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is God and he's eternal God and he took on flesh and became a man. But he also highlighted in verse 9 how Jesus is the, the true light. Do you remember that? And as the true light of the world, that, that's to say that uh, the very presence of Jesus in the world, um, his, his, his very Uh, incarnation and his dwelling among humanity and and the truth that he brings reveals the reality of uh, ultimately, as his light shines, a division within humanity. Uh, Humanity, because of Christ's coming, is divided into two groups of people. One group, as John lays it out in the first chapter, One group among humanity is revealed in their rejection of Jesus and their unbelief. So this is a group that when Jesus comes into the world, they do not receive him and believe in his name. They do not accept him as Messiah. Uh, They outwardly 
reject him, reject him completely. This is one group, and uh, this is the majority of the world, really, rejects Christ as Messiah and Savior. Uh, the other group is revealed when Christ comes um, by their receiving Jesus and believing in his name. So at one point, this group is in the first group. There, there are two groups, one in which all of humanity is, right, rejecting Jesus. Out of that group, then, there are some that receive Jesus and now believe it is in his name and become part of this, this second group, now out of the first group. These are um, the children of God. Once the children of the world, as we were, children of the world, were we not? Children of wrath, um, living in disobedience, Paul says, rebelling against God. This was our life, rejecting Jesus. And then suddenly we receive Jesus, believe in his name, and we actually become no longer children of the world, but through faith in Christ, we become children of God. And John goes on to tell us is the reason we become children of God and receive Christ and believe in him is not because of anything we have done. It's not because of our desires. It's not because of our abilities. It's not because we were so lovable and so good that God just needed to have someone like me and his family. He actually looked and then he, John says, he caused you to be born again. We were born again, not by our own ability, but by God's doing. This is why this group leaves the first group and then becomes part of this new group of God's people. And so John really is writing his gospel, and he says his purpose in the gospel in John 20, verse 30 to 31, his purpose is to bear witness to Jesus. All of these signs and things that Jesus did, he says, we could fill books upon books upon books, but I've chosen a few of them in order to reveal about Jesus so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I write these things so that you, who are in the first group of people, may be brought out, that you may come to Jesus and be saved. And of course, it's also given to us who are already in Christ as an encouragement and strengthening. And so John writes this gospel. He says, here is Jesus. This is who he is. This is who I'm bearing witness to, Messiah, Son of God, these are the signs that confirm it, and this is what he has done. And those who are born of God will receive and believe him, and those who are not born of God will still reject him. Now, I thought about this passage, and I thought, boy, and the Gospel of John, and I thought, you know, in our pluralistic, relativistic age, really a prideful age, just as it was back then when John wrote this, 
that kind of Jesus, which ultimately ends up being a very exclusive Jesus, is difficult for people to accept, right? It strikes people as arrogant and intolerant. It bothers people because it's incompatible with the worldview that says there are no absolutes in the world. In our society, in fact, we have abandoned absolutes in the world to such an extent that we don't even think that biological truth of men and women exist. We don't even look and people don't even think, well, you don't, if you're born a man, you're not, you don't really have to be a man. You can become a woman. Like, we've abandoned all kind of right and wrong and truth altogether. But when we preach Jesus, at least when the Jesus that John is presenting to us, this Jesus is presented as a exclusive Jesus. Not a pluralistic Jesus. Not a Jesus that can become anything you want. You see, in our society, if one even mentions Jesus at all, if Jesus is even to be tolerated in the world at all, he must be a malleable, shape-shifting Jesus. This is a Jesus our world tolerates. A Jesus that people can accept is, if at all, is a Jesus that can be adopted to fit whatever form one chooses. I thought of it like a silly putty or slime. It just takes the form of whatever you want it to. Or maybe, well, you may be, some of you probably know what I'm talking about. Some of you are too young, but the Wonder Twin Powers, where they slap their rings together and take the form of something, ice or animal, and they take the form of whatever they want. This is the kind of Jesus that the world can accept. A Jesus who is mushy. A Jesus who's undefined. A Jesus who's, who's slippery. A Jesus that doesn't create distinctions among people. A Jesus that isn't divisive. A Jesus who doesn't call on anyone to repent from sin and faith and to call them to faith in him. But a Jesus that accepts you just the way that you are and makes no demands on your life. Is that not the Jesus that the world presents if they do at all? They love that Jesus. That's a Jesus I can live with. But a Jesus who is exclusive and a Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. A Jesus that says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. A Jesus that says, the will of the Father is that you look on me and believe and so have eternal life. That Jesus, our world doesn't want. And so when you're listening to Christian teachings and you're listening to preachers and you're reading books about Jesus, I just want to call you to be aware of what kind of Jesus 
you're looking at. Be aware of what kind of Jesus is being born witness to you through what you're reading and hearing. Because Jesus speaks of himself as the only way. Jesus speaks of himself as exclusive, and so does the New Testament. There is no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so we saw last week in verses 19 to 34 that Jesus, when he began his public earthly ministry, John the Baptist, his forerunner, was sent by God, and he's the first to publicly bear witness to Jesus' arrival in the world. And his testimony is all about pointing people to Christ. In verse 19 to 28, John testified to the glory and preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember I said it followed our bulletin? This is where he began. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is eternal. And so leaders come from Israel to find out who John the Baptist was, but John kept responding by saying, I'm merely a voice crying in the wilderness to make way for the Lord's arrival. John is not concerned about himself. His sole purpose was to point people to Jesus who is greater infinitely than all. Be on the lookout for Jesus. He's coming. Humble yourselves before him. And then verse 29 to 34 was the heart of his message. The next day, after his interaction with the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, he sees Jesus coming toward him, and then he identifies Jesus as, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, there he is. This is the one who I am speaking to you of. The world is full of sin, and here is the only one who can take away your sin. And so when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he is saying, here is the one who is the fulfillment, remember we saw last week, of all the lambs of the Old Testament. All these types and shadows that God used to point to this coming Jesus he is the true lamb. He is, Jesus is the lamb of God sacrificed in the place of sinners, like the lamb of Abraham and Isaac. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood covers his people so that God's judgment passes over them like the Passover lamb in Exodus. Jesus is the lamb sacrificed in the holy of holies that truly cleanses sinners before God, like those lambs sacrificed in the temple over and over again. But Jesus sacrificed once. And Jesus is the lamb who satisfies the justice of God by bearing the iniquity of sinners, the lamb of Isaiah 53. And his point is, don't look to another. Here is the preeminent one. Don't look. For another. 
there is no other. There is no other lamb that can take away the sin of the world. And so we're told now, on that day where John preaches this, we are not told of anyone who heard or responded to his preaching about Jesus on that day. No one. No one received Jesus. No one believed in Jesus. No one followed Jesus. No one inquired about Jesus. There were absolutely no results that day when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what does John the Baptist do the next day? Does John the Baptist say, well, maybe I should present Jesus in a different light. Maybe I should present a Jesus that scratches the itch and the ear that the people have. Maybe this Jesus, maybe this is a little bit too harsh about this Jesus. And so I'm going to change the message a little bit. And I'm going to make Jesus mm, tweak him a little bit. Make him a little bit more mushy. Make Jesus really more about what the people really want and need. And this is the Jesus I'm going to preach the next day because this first day didn't work out so well. No. That's not, that's not what the people of God do. Verse 35 says, The next day again, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and he gave the same message. Behold, the Lamb of God. Pay attention, people. Behold, this is the Lamb of God. He doesn't change. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't pull back from the one truth that people really need to hear, which is Jesus takes away the sins of the world. And this time, the result of the preaching this time is different. And men come to the Lamb of God to receive him, and to believe in his name. And the two groups within the world begin to take shape between those who believe and those who reject. That's what verses 35 to 51 are about. It's a simple account that presents to us the humble beginnings of the Christian church. And the account is of five men over the course of two days came to receive and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the faithful testimony of John the Baptist. What a testimony to the truth of, of Christ can do Jesus saves 
through the preaching of his word, and he saves ordinary men as the word is sown and the church is born. So here in verse 35 to 40, we see the first two men that are saved. They're standing with John the Baptist, and they heard what he said about Jesus, and now on this day they followed Jesus. Now at this point, as John's going to carry on his narrative here, they don't yet understand what Jesus being the Lamb of God means, okay? Uh, Not even John the Baptist knows every detail of how God is going to work out and accomplish these, this salvation through Jesus. He doesn't know that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He, he didn't know Jesus would be rejected by the people by, in unbelief. He didn't know that he himself would be in prison. John the Baptist didn't know. All he knew, all he knew was that this is the Messiah that I was to come proclaim, and that this is the one who takes away the sin of the world. This is the coming one. This is the extent of what John knew, which is more than anyone else did. But even John needed confirmation and assurance from Jesus later on as John is in prison that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Do you remember that? In Luke 7, 18 to 23, John sends uh, messengers to ask Jesus whether or not he is the Messiah. Jesus' response is, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Tell this to John. In other words, tell John that what is taking place through me is exactly what God said would happen. And it's a way of encouraging John to say, John, um, what you preached about me is true. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You were rightly bearing witness to me, John. And that was a comfort for John. And so the point is that these two men that right now come to follow Jesus at the testimony of John the Baptist, they know less than John the Baptist did at this point. But they follow Jesus, not yet in faith as disciples, and not yet in response to Jesus' explicit call on their lives, which we see take place in the synoptic Gospels, but as one, as those who heard about Jesus from John the Baptist and wanted to know more about him. They are what you might call seekers. These are men who are in the come and see stage of their conversion. Come and see. Come and behold Jesus. Listen to him. And so they, they, they want to know more. This is how it works even in our own life, right? Someone spoke to you of Christ in your life somewhere along the line. And you heard about Jesus. The seed of God's word is sown and you responded. Sometimes the seed is taken away quickly, right? It's sown and it falls on a hardened path. And the heart hardened by sin gives no response or inquiry about Jesus at all. Sometimes the interest lasts for a brief season, but like seed that is sown in rocky soil and it springs up for a season, 
There really is no root there, and when trials come, the interest in Jesus withers away. Sometimes the interest, like seed in thorny soil, is choked out by the cares of the world, and these things become more pressing to that person than Jesus, and so they abandon Jesus. You know what parable this is. And sometimes, and it could be hours later, days later, months later, years later, that seed is sown and an interest in Jesus is sparked. And somewhere along the line, they inquire more about Jesus and God causes that seed to grow. And their interest turns into understanding and their curiosity turns into confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior and their fascination turns into faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They become fruit-bearing plants. The seed is planted by John's testimony about Jesus. On that day, they follow Jesus to learn more. And so our Lord turns around and he sees them following and he asks them, and this is so important, he asks them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? It's not because Jesus doesn't know. He asks it for their benefit. Our Lord knows what is in the hearts of men. He knows what kind of soil it is. He wants them to examine their own interest in Jesus. What brings you to me? What are your motives for following me? What are you looking for in me? What is the condition of the soil of your heart? People come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons, right? People, even in the Gospels, you see some people came to Jesus because they wanted to be healed. Some people came to Jesus because they wanted to be fed by him. Some people came to Jesus because they wanted to challenge him and silence him. Some came to attack him and to kill him. Some came to Jesus thinking he could restore the kingdom to Israel and, and wanted to make him an earthly king and ruler. Some came to Jesus for his wisdom on earthly matters. One guy came to Jesus saying, Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Do you remember that? Some people came to Jesus because they were seeking spiritual guidance. They, they said, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And some people, like Judas Iscariot, came to Jesus because he saw a way to make himself rich. And he saw a way to gather more money and to become successful. This is the truth even today. People come to Jesus all the time seeking for something. And they never ask the question, what are you seeking from Jesus? Why are you following me? What is it you want me, Jesus says, to do for you? This is what he asks them. Boy, how you answer that question says a lot about whether or not you're seeking the right Jesus. 
they responded to his question by addressing him as rabbi, which John says for his Gentile readers means teacher. It's a title of respect and honor. And they ask him this, they ask him, where are you staying? Now, why do they ask him that? They're not just making awkward small talk. You know, you meet someone important or whatever, someone you're like, oh, well, I don't know, I, well, where are you staying today, uh, blah, blah. No, it's not making small talk. I do that a lot because I get in awkward situations. Anyway, not about me, but no, they're not asking him. It's a polite way of expressing their desire to have a more intimate and private conversation with Jesus about those things they heard about him right? They heard from John the Baptist that Jesus is great and infinitely great. They heard Jesus is the Lord that the prophet Isaiah said would come. They heard Jesus is the one that the Spirit descended on like a dove at his baptism. From John the Baptist, they heard. They heard that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. They heard Jesus is the Son of God. They heard Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the seed that was planted in them, the seed sown by John the Baptist. They don't know what it means, but they know I'm a sinner. And if all of this is true about you, Jesus, then our heart's desire is to know more about you and to become more acquainted with you. And Jesus, seeing their desire, how does he respond? He says, come. Come, and you will see. Come, and you will see who I am and what I am. Come, Jesus says, and be acquainted with me. That is such good news. Jesus welcomes all sinners who sincerely want to know who he is and what he has done. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, the living water that is Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Jesus welcomes, come ye sinners, poor and needy. And so they came and they saw where Jesus was staying. And they stayed with Jesus at his place that day because John says it was already about the 10th hour, which is 4 p.m. It was already late. And so they stayed there talking well past four o'clock with Jesus into the next day. And we can only imagine what that conversation consisted of because John doesn't tell us. 
But I imagine that our Lord spoke to them from the scriptures of all the things concerning himself. A conversation these two disciples just couldn't leave, and it resulted in the Lord giving growth to that seed planted by John, and these two men are given faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they receive him as the Messiah. They had much to learn, and that becomes evident as the gospel moves forward, but I believe they received Jesus and they believed in his name there, and from this point on, they could follow no other. They had come to the Lamb of God And my prayer and my question to you this morning is, has Christ won your affection and devotion like that? Has he? If not, Jesus says, if you have questions about me, Jesus says, come. Come and see. Come and read of me and hear from me and learn of me from my word. And Jesus says, if you genuinely inquire of him, Jesus says he will make himself known to you. And so one of these two men was named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and the other one is not named. And like we said, that's probably John the evangelist. He never names himself in the gospel. He wrote it. So Andrew and John the Evangelist come. And so that then um, seed is grown. They come to Jesus in faith. And you can see the fruit bearing faith in Andrew the very next day. Because the very next day, Andrew does what all Christians do upon coming to faith in Jesus. He goes to the one closest to him. He goes to Simon, his brother, and he tells Simon, Simon, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. He is here. His name is Jesus. He told me everything about why he came, what he came to do. Come and see the Messiah. John the Baptist sows the seed. Andrew and John come to see Jesus. Andrew sows the seed, and now Simon comes to see Jesus. And when Jesus looked at Simon, he knows what's in Simon's heart because he's omniscient. He says to him, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which in Aramaic, it's the word for rock. And John says it's Peter in Greek. And so our Lord knows exactly the kind of man Simon was. He has perfect knowledge of all people, places, and things. It's proof of his deity. And because he knows Simon and he knows the kind of man Simon will become, he names him Peter. He's going to take this impulsive, restless, unsteady man. And if you read the Gospels, you notice that's what Simon is like. He's the first to jump into the water. He strikes a soldier in the ear. He rebukes Jesus, he's restless, and Jesus is going to make him a foundational leader in the earliest days of the church. He calls him a firm rock, a solid stone in Christ's church. 
He'd ultimately be martyred for his faith. And so the next day, these are the first three. And so the next day, beginning in verse 30, 43 to 51, we see two more added to the list of disciples. Now, what is interesting here in verse 43 is in your translations in the ESV, if you look at what the translation we use, it says the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me, right? So it makes Jesus the subject of the entire verse and that's a possible translation. However, in the Greek, the verse is actually structured in a way that leaves the subject of the first part of the verse open. So literally in the Greek, it's written like this. Because it doesn't work like English and Greek, right? We, we put our subjects before the verb, but you can put in the Greek, you can put them at the end, you can put them in different places. In any case, here's how it actually reads in Greek. The next day he decided to leave for Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. So, so it's possible that the one who went to Galilee and found Philip is actually Andrew. He's the subject of that first clause. This is why, he, this is why if you notice, he says in verse, uh, when, when Andrew comes to faith, the two disciples that heard him, um, where is it? In verse uh, 40, he says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And it says, he first found his own brother. The reason he says first found his own brother is because also Philip or Andrew is the one who also secondly went to find, um, and went to find Philip. So the next day, he decided to leave for Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. So Andrew first found Peter, then he went and found Philip. And so it's an open question. It doesn't say that it's Andrew. It can go either way. But I actually think it fits better with Andrew being the one within the context of John's emphasis on bearing witness to Jesus. How people begin coming to and believing in Jesus. And so if the translation is the way that I'm presenting it to you with Andrew as the subject, and it could be, it actually flows consistently that you'll notice everyone who comes to Jesus in this chapter comes to Jesus because of someone else bearing witness. John bears witness to, to Jesus. Andrew and John, the evangelist, come. Andrew bears witness to Peter, and Peter comes to Jesus. Andrew bears witness to Philip, and Philip comes to Jesus. Philip bears witness to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel comes to Jesus. You see how it works? This is how it works. Beloved, we are to bear witness to Jesus, and through our bearing witness to Jesus, the church grows. It's been like this from the beginning. Bearing witness to Christ, pointing people to Christ, is how the church grows because God then uses that to draw men and women to himself. And then on top of that, it, it makes sense 
Because if you read in the synoptic gospels, remember when Jesus is walking and, and like Peter is in the boat fishing, right? And Andrew, and Jesus says, follow me. What do they do? They drop everything and they leave everything and follow him. And now when I used to read that, I thought, well, that's, wow. They just left everything and followed him at that moment. Like, did they never see him? Had they never heard about him before? And Jesus just walked and said, Call. no, I think this is what happened before. They had talked with Jesus. They heard Jesus. And at that moment in the synoptics, when Jesus is walking by and says, Peter, follow me now. Peter's like, I'm there. And he came and he followed. Same thing with Andrew and Peter and James and John, right? So Philip follows Jesus as well. And then Philip goes to find Nathaniel, who's called Bartholomew in the other Gospels. You always see those two together. We don't need to go into why it's Bartholomew, but it is. And so Philip sows the seed, and he says to Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, his first reaction, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course, his reaction to Jesus being identified as from Nazareth, which is where he grew up, and his question, can anything good come out of there? There was some kind of rivalry that existed between the cities of Cana, where he's from, and Nazareth, um, where Jesus grew up, both in Galilee. It's about 10 miles north of Cana. And so he couldn't see, how could the Messiah come from that town, Nazareth? Um, that's Nathaniel's thought. But Philip says to him, come and see. Come and be acquainted with Jesus. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't debate. But he wants, he wants, Philip, he wants Nathaniel to come and see the Savior that he now knows. And so Nathaniel, he lays aside his preconceived notions about Nazareth, and he goes to Jesus. And when Jesus sees Nathaniel coming toward him in his omniscient understanding of man, he says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He's not mocking Nathaniel. He's not being sarcastic. His point is like the point with Peter. Jesus knows everything about Nathaniel, and when he looks at Nathaniel, this Israelite, he sees a man who's willing, in spite of his blunt criticism about Jesus being from Nazareth, in spite of all of his objections, he's willing to come and hear about Jesus. No guile kept him from wanting to know the truth about Jesus. And so Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? How do you know my character? And Jesus answered him, not only do I know you, not only do I know you, Nathaniel, but even before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I know more about you, Nathaniel, than you realize. Was he doing under the fig tree? He's probably, which is known in, in rabbinic writings, it's where people studied and meditated on the Old Testament scripture. And so Jesus knew even the place of Nathaniel 
where he's searching to know the Messiah. And his desire to know and to be acquainted with the Messiah now is right before him as Jesus displays himself and his knowledge before Nathanael. And then Nathanael answered in faith, and he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. The seed sprouts into faith in Jesus, and he believes. It's awesome. It's awesome. He belonged now to Jesus. And whatever was Nathanael's understanding of it at the time, it, his faith would be strengthened because Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? It's a good faith. You believe in me. It's based off of this miracle that I displayed to you, but I want to tell you something, Nathaniel. You will see greater things, greater things than these. And then he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and now this is to really all of Jesus' disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we're going to conclude here, but what he's referring to there is from Genesis 28, 12. That's where Jacob has a vision of a ladder being set up from the earth and reaching into the heavens. Do you remember that? And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the point was that all these men, you, plural, in verse 51, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, all of you, that in the same way that Jacob received confirmation of the promise made to him from the Lord, so what happened was this ladder's going from the earth to the heavens, and at the top of the ladder that is in the heavens, the Lord stands there. And the Lord says to uh, Jacob, as he's standing above the, the ladder that the angels are going up and down, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, Isaac. And then he gives Jacob the promise of the land. And so this is confirmation the Lord is giving to Jacob that the promise is true, you will receive what I have promised to you. And so they are promised by Jesus, essentially, I think, by Jesus saying this, that they will receive heaven-sent confirmation that the one that they have received and placed their faith in as Messiah is the one appointed by God to be the mediator between God and men. What you, what you see right now, Nathaniel, and all of you disciples, you will see indeed from heaven the signs and confirmation from heaven that I am the Messiah appointed by God to be your Savior. And they will see it. In fact, you see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, the first miracle of Jesus. So I think we need to take to heart this morning a couple things. Take to heart what you learned about the Lord Jesus here and how he welcomes sinners. 
Jesus welcomes sinners who want to know him. And he says, come and see. And then take to heart, beloved, how the church grows as Jesus begins his ministry. And the way it grows is with the sowing of God's word. Beloved, we need to press on in that mission to point sinners to Christ and no one else. Don't point them to Christ because you're promising them bread. Don't point them to Christ because you're promising their life will get better on this world. Don't point them to Jesus because you're promising them money and fame and power and fortune and good comfort and everything's going to go good with you. Point them to Christ because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the Lamb of God. And, and if you're here this morning and you haven't come to Christ, I call you now to come to Christ and to receive him and he will make himself known to you and he will redeem you if you come to him in faith and repentance. It's a foolish message, Paul says. It's foolishness, the preaching of the cross to those who are perishing, but to us, beloved, what is it? It's the power of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the picture here that we have of our Savior. Thank you for the faithful, for the faithfulness of our Savior, for his love and for his kindness and for his willingness for us to come and see who he is and then for making himself known to us. We thank you, O oh God, for the faithfulness of men like John the Baptist and Andrew and Philip and the Apostle Paul and all of the disciples and for Mary and for Elizabeth and for all of those, Father, who have pointed others to Christ. We thank you that they sowed a seed and that that seed was used by you to give faith to your children, and, and now we are the recipients of that, Father. Someone, somewhere along the line, sowed the seed of your word and pointed us to Christ, and because of that, we heard of him, and we came to see him, and he gave us life. Uh, we are so grateful for that, Father. We pray for whoever that is. We each have been touched by various people that you would just bless them this morning, whether it's our parents or our friends or our children or our co-workers or our neighbor, whoever it was that first pointed us to Christ, even our grandparents, we pray, Father, that you would just grant them a, a special blessing this morning and bless their hearts. Perhaps they're already with you and they've received their eternal reward. But Lord, we are just grateful that you use them in that way. And we pray, oh God, that we would be faithful tools in your hands as well. Help us to be faithful servants that sow the seed in the world. That point others to Christ and not to ourselves. 
that are not ashamed to say that in Christ alone there is the forgiveness of sin. And those that come to him will receive eternal life. Help us to be faithful to preach the cross. Let us never do good deeds in the world that are not coupled ultimately with the desire to point those people that we serve to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Thank you, Father, for this day and for your people. And thank you for loving us so perfectly in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.